Welcome to Unlocking Brand, a part of our Siegel & Gale Says podcast series. Here, our global brand experts host live case studies, deliver actionable insights, and answer key questions on the topics that matter to brand marketers today. Only one out of four employees find their workplace truly simple. So, what does this mean for brands? In this episode, we explore the findings from our Simplicity at Work study, which shows that organizations that invest in simplifying their workplace benefit from greater trust, advocacy, enrichment, and retention among employees. Our Group Director of Brand-Led Change, Gretchen Hustis, Global Director of Business Analytics and Insights, Brian Rafferty, and Global Chief Marketing Officer, Margaret Malloy, discuss the connection between employee engagement and brand. This is Siegel & Gale Says. Hello and welcome to the Siegel & Gale Future of Branding Unlocking Brand series. In this series, we delve into the case studies and issues that matter most to marketers today. I'm Margaret Malloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel & Gale and your host for today's conversation. Siegel & Gale is a preeminent brand strategy, design and experience firm. A quick look through your LinkedIn feed reveals brand leaders espousing that employees are critical stakeholders. But how are organizations doing when it comes to making employees' lives easier at work? Brand leaders are also investing a ton in social influencers, external influencers. But what can be done to grow the number of brand champions among employees? At Siegel & Gale, we set out to study the state of simplicity at work and what brands can gain from simplification of employee experiences. The findings are startling and show tremendous potential. Spoiler alert, only one in four employees find their workplace to be truly simple. Today, we will have an in-depth conversation on the findings from our Siegel & Gale Simplicity at Work study. And we will explore the vital connection between employee engagement and an organization's brand. To do so, I am joined by two wonderful colleagues. First, I want to welcome and say a very good morning to Gretchen Hustus, our Group Director, Brand-Led Change. Hello, Gretchen, where are you joining from today? I am joining you from sunny San Francisco. Delighted to have you. Thank you, Gretchen. And my colleague, Brian Rafferty, is our Global Director of Business Analytics and Insights. Where are you this morning, Brian? Well, I'm in rainy New Jersey, actually. So contrary to Gretchen, I don't have the benefit of the good weather. Well, fantastic. Well, you both have the benefit of focusing on this conversation for the next hour. So Gretchen, let's begin with a big question. What is the current state of employees at work? Touch on it briefly, because I know we will elaborate throughout the conversation. 
Sure, Margaret. I think in a word, I would say tumultuous. You know, um, most of us have lived through the last couple of years. We had COVID, which kind of rewrote the rules on where work can get done. Then we had a post-COVID boom, which meant power was back in the talent's hands. Talent shortages led to them demanding what they wanted when they wanted. Then we moved into a recessionary period where it swung back the other way. Employers were in charge. We saw rounds of layoffs. And amongst all of this, there was increased focus on DEI, five generations in the workplace at the first time, and new technologies like AI. So we're talking about a lot of change, a lot of complexity in the workplace. So with that as a backdrop, why focus on simplicity? Why does simplicity matter? I think it's the antidote to the complexity and the, and the massive change I've just talked about. One of the things about simplicity is that it really allows employees to cut through and still add value amongst this churn and change. Just top line, two very interesting things we found about simple workplaces. Employees tend to trust leadership twice as much as those of complex organizations, and they also are nearly twice as likely to feel supported in their learning and their development and growth. So if you think about change, those two factors, trust, and then that the organizations looking after me to grow through this change are really important to navigate that. Gretchen, for clarity, how do you define a simple workplace? So in the study, we defined a simple workplace as those where employees report that they can basically get things done. They can manage their daily workload. They have simple people experiences and things like recruitment and onboarding and really positive day-to-day -day interactions. So now that we know what a simple workplace is, Brian, I'd love for you to dig into the research. Tell us how you went about the research and what did you set out to explore specifically? Sure, Margaret. Well, so it's a, a big global study of over 15,000 people in nine countries. And, you know, these people work in a whole variety of industries, um, you know, obviously as, as they self-reported. And uh, what we wanted to measure was one of us, you know, to, to Gretchen's point regarding simple workplaces, just how they saw their workplace in terms of it being simple or complex. And as you know, you said in the intro, what we found is only one out of four really saw that their workplace is simple. But then we also wanted to understand more things regarding potential benefits that they could seek. Um, and what I mean by that is not employee benefits, but things such as being more productive or being more innovative or having you know an easier time managing their workload, for example. So we measured their perceptions on a, of their workplace on a whole series of different types of, if you will, attributes, some related to their daily work, some related to leadership, and also some related to the degree of employee engagement and sort of brand engagement that they have that I know we're going to talk about in a little bit. Those are all impressions of how they perceive their workplace ability to get the job done effectively being a key component. What stood out to you about the findings in particular? Well, I mean, I think one just that there really is a big delta on pretty much every positive desired outcome, if you will, that you would want of simpler workplaces versus more complex ones in the sense that, you know, it's differences of 40 to, to over 30 percent on for example, trusting leadership more, being more likely to advocate and recommend the company, being more likely to want to stay at their job. So it's not just that there is a benefit to, to simpler workplaces. It really is also just that, you know, that, that benefit is pretty tremendous from a size standpoint. So can you explain a little more in detail how employees and employers both benefit? You, you touched on improved productivity. Could you go a little deeper on that, please? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we measured a whole series of different things, but everything from 
bringing new ideas to the table, being able to handle unexpected problems better, uh, being wanting to learn new things, feeling more productive. All of these, we found that there was a significant increase in people having you know positive feelings along all these lines when they were working in a simpler workplace and a, than a more complex one. And then when you think about Leadership and employers is obviously a benefit to employers when you have employees that want trust leadership more, but then are also going to be more likely to advocate as well as be more able to actually bring solutions to, to customers and, and clients because of that. Certainly, one of the things we hear from leadership all the while is the desire to activate employees around innovation and the world is ever more complex. So from a customer service perspective, as well as new product and new innovations, the idea of unlocking the innovation potential of employees is extraordinary. Yes, agreed. And and I think that's where we really see that simplicity. Obviously, when you think about simplicity at large, and you know, we look at also how brands should be simpler, we know that there's a lot of benefit in terms of bringing simplicity through innovation, but there's also the fact that simplicity in the workplace actually drives innovation. Now, you mentioned it was a global study and it covered many regions as well as industries. Anything interesting there in terms of variance across? Sure. I mean, what we saw, you know, from an industry standpoint is industries that potentially were more sort of service oriented, if you will, had a, a tendency to sort of be be seen as simpler, but also to, to have more engaged employees, which makes sense. You know, one of the industries where it's the hardest in terms of, of driving employee engagement is also, you know, retail. So that, you know, has a has a similar issue. In terms of country, I mean, what we saw is is something that in some ways sort of confirms what you read about in the press on on many countries in the sense that, you know, some countries are more positive than than others. Interestingly, you know, India was really sort of the the one that that's the most positive. And then Japan is the one that's the most negative. Um, and that again, you know, one has seen that in in um, lots of articles in the media regarding how employees in Japan, you know, have in some ways the hardest time um, with their work and their workload and just managing work in general. And Brian, just to be clear, what was the question they were answering when identifying the degree of simplicity or complexity in their experience as employees? Well, I mean, the question was just to have them rate their workplace in terms of how simple or complex it was their daily interactions and ability to get things done from a work standpoint. Yeah, thank you for that. That question coming in. And I continue to invite our audience to put your questions in the Q&A, please. So let's now talk about brand champions. I hinted at this in the intro. Um, obviously, very desirable behavior for employees to advocate on behalf of their employer and brand. How do you think about, Brian, classifying employees as it relates to brand champions? Sure. I mean, the way we look at it is really it's it's looking at it on two dimensions. One is do employees understand what the company stands for, you know, company slash brand, but in some ways it's sort of the for them it's is the company. And then two, are they committed to it? And uh, you know, what we see as champions are the ones who are both understanding and committed. 
And what we've seen, you know, in, in our work and, and as and Gretchen in her work is that often when there hasn't been a sustained effort, if you will, at um, really engaging employees and, uh, you know, driving greater understanding amongst employees, you get a lot of what we call wildcards, which are people who are committed to what the company stands for, but they actually don't really understand it. And so they're all committed to something slightly different, which is not a terrible thing, but it is it is basically not leveraging them to the greatest ability that a company can, where they're all telling the same story and driving the same understanding externally, also what the company stands for. So you have wild cards, and you mentioned a two by two. So implicit in that is there are four quadrants um, by which we classify employees on this domain of brand champions. What are the others? Sure. So brand champions are the ones who understand and are committed. Wildcards are the ones who are committed but don't really know what they're committed to. And then, you know, they're bystanders, which are people who understand, but they're actually not really committed. So they're just, uh, you know, in some ways, the more cynical audience. And then they're the ones who are, you know, currently unengaged, meaning they aren't committed, but they also don't really have the knowledge of what they need to be committed to. So in some ways, they're, you know, they're failing on both of those. Yeah. So thinking about employees along these dimensions, it's really helpful because it can be indicative of the prescription, if you will, to advance more employees and the interventions that Gretchen will talk about later to advance employees into this brand champion quadrant. Anything else you would say on these classifications, Brian, in your experience? I know you've done it in this study, but you also do this work across many, many brands. Sure. I was just on the knowledge piece, you know, and obviously in this study, since it was a broad study amongst you know, many different, we, we didn't know the companies that people actually worked with. But when we do this for clients, we want to not just ask people self-report on whether they understand what the company stands for, but often we also kind of test them. I mean, they don't really realize they're being tested. But anyway, having a question where you actually get them to really express what they think the company stands for so that you can verify whether they actually do know or don't know what leadership, if you will, or, or um, you know, what the right answer is. I know, Brian, a question I get often, what is the difference between this approach and methodology to an employee SAT survey? And are they correlated? Are they both helpful? How would you advocate for doing this work in addition to employee satisfaction surveys? Sure. I mean, they, one, they obviously would correlate. I mean, what we focus on much more and per, you know, Gretchen's side of things is also understanding how brand really can help drive satisfaction with employees and, and also drive results for the company from an internal standpoint. So a lot of also what we're looking at in the studies we do is not just to understand the degree of engagement, but also to understand, for example, which parts of the employee experience are actually driving that engagement more than others. Um, you know, how does prospective talent view you versus how does your internal employees, you know, how aligned is what your internal employees see versus what prospective talent is seeking from you? So a number of, if you will, further learnings that we often look at when we're working with clients and that correlate to what would be an employee satisfaction study, but actually provide a different learnings that are set to do different things and, and generate different outcomes and, and information for our work. Very, very helpful, Brian. I can imagine how they would be highly complementary, especially as brands look at that layer of brand as influencing customer 
perspective, but in this context, of course, employee perspectives as well. So Gretchen, that's a great segue into talking about brand champions. It may be intuitive to people, but how would you value brand champions? Why? Why should an employer aspire to having more employees in that quadrant? Thank you, Margaret. Well, I mean, there's there's first and foremost the advocacy. So they tend to be very vocal and speak positively about the organization, which, of course, really helps. And, and, and in fact, they're more trusted than many other sources for learning about a company and whether you want to engage with it. People tend to trust employees more than actually some of those formal corporate um, methodologies. But beyond that, they provide a lot of value to the organization because they really give what I like to describe as the discretionary effort category. So these are things that are not formally written into job descriptions, but it's exactly what you want your workforce to come and do every day. So we found things like the brand champions are handling unexpected problems very well. They're trying to learn new things, even if those things are difficult. They're looking for new ways to improve in their work all the time and generally reporting higher levels of productivity um, across the board. And that's like roughly 30% more than the disengaged for those things I've just mentioned. So that adds up, you know, and, and it's really hard to eke that out of people unless they come and give it, you know, in that more discretionary way. That's an extraordinary delta that you've identified and illustrates the tremendous potential. Can you take a little deeper into brand champions? What motivates them in your research? Well, for me, this was one of the most interesting pieces of the study we've just done. So what we found was that brand champions were really motivated by a set of factors that were slightly more intangible. So some of the things top of the list were their personal professional growth, the organization's commitment to DEI, the company's reputation itself, their own relationship with clients, and whether they got interesting or challenging work, their personal fulfillment through work and recognition for that. So we we looked at these as kind of slightly more intangible, contrasted with things that are often viewed as important to focus on, like salary and benefits. But interestingly, you know, those were salary and benefits were not the things that were most motivating this group. They were for the disengaged, the disengaged more highly rated those two factors of salary and benefits. But for the champions, you know, it was this first group of things that are slightly more intangible and that don't often get enough attention in organizations talking about how we dig into those things like your personal fulfillment and so on and so forth. So I found that super interesting and actually kind of put data behind something we often talk to our clients about when they're formulating their talent brand or their employee value proposition. We often say to them, if you want to attract these champions and keep them engaged and performing, don't talk about the table stakes and your limited time of what you can show up and say. Focus on these things and really make sure that cuts through in the messaging about who you are and the employer that you are and what you offer. So Gretchen, if I'm hearing you correctly, your counsel is, yes, salary, benefits, vacation, etc., are expected. But when you're trying to get the attention of this very desirable employee base, elevate the other benefits in the hierarchy of your conversation and messaging. Absolutely. Yeah. How do, how do you engage brand champions, Gretchen, now that they're on board? Well, I think you have to keep stoking the fire of those two dimensions that Brian mentioned at the beginning in terms of how we identify them. So, you know, he talked about the commitment to the organization and also their knowledge of what we're about as an organization and how do I apply that in my daily work and the decisions I make. So we tend to put together programs for these champions and for the whole organization, because what we want to do is slowly but surely move as many people as we can into that upper quadrant on the right, the brand champion quadrant. So we tend to put programs together um, for our clients 
client organizations where we talk about how we can further that commitment and passion around the brand, get them involved in activities and co-creation moments to talk about who we are, what we're promising, and then educational pieces. So again, a systematic educational piece. It can't be just be done once. A very good practice is to make sure there's a good dose of that in onboarding because you can always catch employees the first time they come in, but it can't just be those moments. We suggest programs that continue to refresh and bring knowledge to people about their work and how it connects to the brand. Brian and Gretchen, you both touched on the importance of diversity, equity and inclusion in uh, employees' engagement with their workplace. What did we learn in the research as it relates to DEI? Uh, well, maybe I'll kick that off. So we asked people, um, you know, how they perceived their employer's um, involvement with DEI and sort of saw that there was a range there. And then we looked at the difference between employees who saw their employer, if you will, as invested in DEI versus employees who saw their employer as not invested or anyway, didn't, didn't see their employer as invested in DEI. And what we saw is that there were, you know, in the same way that there are tremendous benefits to, to companies when they're seen as simpler. The same thing applied to, to DEI in the sense that with employers who were seen as committed to DEI were also much more likely to see their workplace as simple, much more likely to uh, feel that they had a role in the purpose of their company. And just in general, you know, much more trusting of, of the company and committed to it. So, you know, we saw obviously a, a lot of benefits that align to the benefits of simplicity with also a commitment to DEI. Gretchen, anything you would elaborate on this? It's a hot topic now. I know from talking to CMOs, it can be a complex topic as well. Brian touched on the benefits. Anything further? Well, I just double back to the thing I just said, which is, you know, DEI was like second in terms of motivation for these champions. So, I mean, it's really important to the employee base that's going to really perform for you. So taking the time to invest in DEI is worth it because you're going to really meet the needs of a very critical talent base uh, in your organization. It matters to them. So that's just all I'd add. Yeah. Brian, we're getting some questions here in the Q&A around top performing industries. You touched on geography earlier, vis-a-vis -vis simplicity and scoring in general. Anything you would say about industries as it relates to DEI and engagement? Yeah, no, I mean, we saw actually, you know, some industries that sort of came more to the top and those were internet search, sort of probably not surprisingly non-profit non also, but then also professional services and, and financial services, as well as retail, health and beauty. So those were the ones that sort of came to the top. I get, I know that, you know, in health and beauty, there's been obviously even on the, on the, um, if you will, product offerings of those companies, a big push to be more inclusive and, and more, um, tailored, if you will, to also different people's skin types and needs and things like that. So th those are the ones that we saw that, that kind of came to the top. Anything surprise you there, Brian? Well, financial services maybe to some degree in the sense that that's not the one that automatically comes to mind as, you know, given to, you know, and obviously financial services is a broad category, but given wealth management and things like that is often not seen as the most widely inclusive just because it's also geared towards people with money. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say that was the surprise. Any regional differences of note as it relates to DEI and employee engagement? 
Well, I just say on the regional side, DEI, one has to be sort of careful at looking at everything as sort of apples to apples, if you will, because it can mean different things in different countries. I mean, we know that from other research we've also done in the sense that obviously, you know, what it means in, in the US is potentially not what it means in China or in India or, you know, in some, in some instances, the focus is more on gender equality, for example, versus other things. So that's just, I guess, not the caution, but just the thing to think about from a, an international standpoint is that it's not just terminology, but also the issues are actually going to be different in different places. That's a really important clarification. The issues are different. The conversation and the culture, perhaps in a different place based on country dynamics and population dynamics as well. Thank you for underlining that, Brian. So, Gretchen, you alluded to a number of programs, and that's really interesting because I know a lot of our audience want to understand, okay, now that I have my baseline, assuming we do this study, and I know where my different employee populations reside vis-a-vis wildcards, bystanders, disengaged, and brand champions, etc., what can we do? What are the interventions? So, begin with telling us What do simple workplaces get right from your research? Thanks, Margaret. We saw, you know, I found it kind of interesting. Four things in particular that they were really getting right. And I and I looked at two of them as like foundational and then two that could build on top of that. So foundationally, what we saw was simple workplaces were two times as likely to focus on psychological safety. So that meant they invested in making sure there was open dialogue, there was transparency, employees were connected, leaders were available. And so that was like, wow. That's interesting. And and so I would say that goes in that foundational element, creating that environment of psychological safety. Secondly, they were 25% more likely to make sure employees are feeling valued compared to complex workplaces. So that meant, you know, okay, not only are they building that environment psychological safety, they're making sure they have systematic, programmatic ways to make sure employees are feeling valued in the way they are contributing to the organization. So with that foundation, then they went on to do two other things, which is kind of deepening the connection. So that was then the third thing was making sure employees could see how their role connected directly to the impact on customer and the delivery of that brand promise. So they, they invested and had ways to show that, you know, what I'm doing here in my job is making an impact over there. And that's clear for me. And then the last part was just inspiring pride in employees. So, you know, putting little efforts, little programs, things in place to say we should feel proud of who we are and the promise we have and the impact we're making into the world. That's a really powerful framework, Gretchen, because we start with those foundational elements and a big shout out to Amy Edmondson and her work around psychological safety. I I often think about that as employees feeling comfortable speaking in draft form without worrying about any repercussions. And then, of course, your higher order interventions around programs that are more targeted. Once you have that psychological safety, you can get to clarity around the connection between employees' contributions, employees' work and the impact on stakeholders like customers. Really great framework. Thank you for that, Gretchen. Can we now talk about specific steps, getting into the tactical, if you will? What are the steps for becoming a simpler workplace? Uh, Brian, anything you would throw into the mix here, please? 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, a lot, as we see, there's a big, strong relationship between people seeing their workplace as simple and also they're being more brand champions. So in some ways, it's a bit the same it's a bit the same answer in the sense that if you're going to have a simpler workplace, you're going to have more brand champions. If you're going to have more brand champions, you're going to have a simpler workplace. And so when you think about that, it really is about using, you know, brand and thinking about the employee experience in terms of which touch points are going to have the greatest impact to really, you know, drive that understanding of what the company stands for and get people committed to it. So, you know, I mean, that's that's where sort of Gretchen and her, her team come in. But I think from a research standpoint, it's also it is understanding those touch points, as Gretchen said, that's what was interesting in terms of the benefits that people saw from being brand champions that they didn't, you know, that it wasn't about salary and traditional benefits so much. It was much more about personal realization and, and you know, feeling that they had opportunities to contribute. So I think it's thinking both overall in a program standpoint, but also being able to address people individually and figuring out how to connect, if you will, that sort of overall larger purpose-driven EVP brand narrative type of element to actual experiences that matter to individuals and where they feel like it's being paid off. But so, I'll, I'll let Gretchen, because that's much more Gretchen's topic than mine. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and just to underline your insight, because I think it's important, the levers that you've identified and Gretchen will explore are different, may even cost less, although they're not free, than the salaries and other benefits that employees spend so much time and employers spend so much time thinking about, they may be leaving opportunity on the table by neglecting these other levers. What, what would you say to that, Gretchen? Absolutely. I think, you know, I love working with Brian because we can take a data-based approach. So we can look at, you know, if it is looking at the brand champions or if it is looking at kind of, you know, employee satisfaction or engagement, understanding that experience and seeing, well, where are things simple? Where are things complex? What matters the most to employees in your experience? How are we doing on some of these top drivers? You know, like my personal fulfillment or our efforts on DEI, you know, or showing your, your relationship to the end customer and promise. So we can dig in and find out how we're doing and then we can make more surgical kind of interventions on what we're going to do to kind of lift and simplify that employee experience. So that is certainly one thing I always recommend and, and I always recommend if an organization can, let's start with some data so we can get there. I also kind of say maybe these are out of order by now, but job number one is, you know, lead with a clear brand purpose. If you don't have a clear idea of who you are as an organization and what you want employees to attach to and get behind, you kind of stuck you know, straight out of the gate. So it's about clarifying that and then making sure your leaders can talk to that because leaders are so powerful in influencing the rest of the organization. They know how to articulate it in authentic ways. They know how to put that to use in the work, you know, that their teams are doing right down the organization. So that's a kind of very important one. And then, you know, I would be remiss not to say, think about your talent brand and your employee value proposition. It's a chance to tell, you know, that talent base out in the world, your current employees, but also ones you want to attract. Look, what we can offer you, it is beyond salary and benefits. We do dig into some of these things that motivate you, particularly those brand champions, um, and help them see what you really could give them in terms of a rich employee experience. So it sounds like the steps you're suggesting, Gretchen, are get the facts, have a baseline, lead with brand purpose, define your EVP, and of course, simplify your employee 
engagement or employee experience specifically. Gretchen, I want you to please define EVP or talent brand, because these terms get referenced a lot. And I think there can be some confusion. Mm -hmm. So, well, EVP, first of all, stands for Employee Value Proposition. And in a nutshell, it is the promise you make. It's it's representing the bond between the employer and employees. And it's unique kind of story that we can tell about the promise I make to you if you come and work here. It's, to be honest, often a little more behind the scenes because it guides, like we talked about a minute ago, what are those experiences we need to engineer and create and do absolutely fantastically here for employees? And that means it's kind of a blueprint for HR colleagues, for communication colleagues, sometimes brand marketing colleagues. However, when it starts to get in the foreground is what we call the talent brand. So that's taking that EVP and that very clear blueprint and promise of what we want to be delivering and turning it into communications and outward facing materials and things that will tell that story powerfully and engage people with it. Gretchen, what would you say to an executive, CEO, head of talent, CMO, when they assert, we already have a value proposition and we have a purpose, why do we need an EVP? And is that different in its vocabulary and how it instantiates? You've mentioned that it plays in different arenas, perhaps, but is the language different in your experience? I mean, I think it's very different because, like I said, it guides a lot of very strategic work. So it can guide the things we're going to invest in, in our employees and experience. It can, it can guide the things that the HR community should be focused on. It can guide what we communicate as far as our communicators in the organization. So it's different than having a purpose. We always link it to the purpose. When we create an employee value proposition for an organization, we're thinking this proposition should make it easy to live this purpose. So we're looking at it, we're triangulating and so on, and we're making sure they fit together. But it's a different, it's a different kind of document that's produced that guides very strategic work. While I'm on the topic, because I, I do love this topic, we also have a point of view on values, which is another thing that gets mixed into the bowl of like, what is all this stuff? And it starts to feel like HR gobbledygook. So the values for us is kind of the other side of the coin of the employee value proposition. So values are we would like employees to come here and every day show these behaviors. If you live these behaviors every day, you're going to help further us getting to delivering on that brand promise. So please, it's our ask, come live these values. Then in return, we're going to create this employee experience, which is guided by the employee value proposition, that feels good for you, where you get these rewards. It makes it easy for you to live these values and deliver on that promise that we make. So there is a relationship between them all. And I would argue you kind of you need them all in the mix. On average, Gretchen, you create these for many clients. What length is the document? What does an EVP document look like for folks on the call or listening who may not have a distinct EVP from their regular value proposition to customers? Sure, it usually gets summarized down to a page which can sound crazy with all the work that goes into it. But, you know, the typical format is it gets a summary line, which is a very clear idea in a sentence or two. What are we ultimately promising? Then we usually write a short little narrative that brings it to life. We have a series of what we call anchors, experience anchors or experience pillars, which are those things we really want to shine a light on about the, you know, the, the experience employees can get at this organization. And then we typically back it up with some proof points, which is the facts, you know, the real things that we have in place that someone working here could experience underneath those set of experience anchors. Um, so it sits on a page at the end of the day. 
Fantastic. Well, Gretchen and Brian, we're getting a number of questions in the Q&A, and one of them is about the role of different leaders in an organization. The audience member asserts that it's clear that the marketer has a role and the CMO, but what about different leaders? You touched on this, Gretchen. Perhaps you would elaborate. Well, I think what we see is, you know, at Siegel & Gale, we really strongly believe delivering on the idea of the promise of your organization is not something that marketing can do alone. Um, because what we believe is a brand is ultimately the experience someone has with your organization and the touch points that someone can have with your organization it extend way beyond just marketing efforts. So we, we take a step back and we say, listen, we need leaders across the organization sitting behind different disciplines and functions to think about how is it that their work and their team's work is ultimately going to influence that outcome. You may be one or two steps back from touching the customer over here or from marketing material that goes out, but you're going to have an impact. So what we advocate from the beginning of creating a brand is getting um, you know, a group of leaders across the organization working with us in consortium to kind of shape this together, to get their buy-in, to believe that you know they have a job to do down the line, um, which starts with helping them be authentic and understanding it and talking to their teams about it and understanding the work that's relative to that part of the organization and its impact on the brand. Great. I hope that answered the question. Sorry, that was a long answer, Margaret. <laughs> oh, no, thank you for that. I, I think it's, it's, it's a complex topic and requires the elaboration and leaders do to be successful in creating more brand champions. You touched on some interventions and programs. Anything you want to highlight or even any practical example that you've experienced? I think, you know, it's the commitment because it takes a while to move people into that quadrant. You know, Brian is, is really helpful working with me to get a baseline measure, but that's the baseline. And then it's about what are the interventions we can put in place to move more people into that quadrant. And through the data, we can see that, um, particularly some organizations, everyone's committed, but nobody's knowledgeable, you know, so quite clear. We need to focus on that part of it, or it could be vice versa, or we can see there's pockets of it geographically. They're good here, but not there you know, and we're functionally and so on. So, but it's about the commitment to stay with it and moving people forward. Brian, all the while we've been talking about brand, brand champions, I'm curious, what's a good number of brand champions? What's realistic and do you see differences? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously we see differences and even, you know, back to, to countries, we can also even see just differences by in, in sort of generally by country. What we've seen is, you know, I mean, a good number, a, a number to aim for is is eighty percent, but that is a high number, and you know, often people don't start at that number, and that's something that they really have to have to go towards. But I mean, I'd say that's, you know, ideally, obviously, you want to aim for a hundred percent, but it's pretty much impossible on an, on any type of research to ever get a hundred percent even if you ask people two plus two equals what you you probably don't get to a hundred percent there but uh anyway yes i'd say 80 percent is is kind of like at least a realistic goal that people should aim for and 80 percent is the brand champion population that both understand and are ready to advocate for the um company brian Gretchen repeatedly indicated that it's important to get the facts and have a good baseline. How frequently should brands repeat the research based on the interventions? And what is realistic from a time frame perspective? I recognize it depends on the programs that Gretchen referenced and the frequency, commitment and investment in them. But what have you seen? 
Sure. I mean, look, you know, traditionally people often do these types of things sort of once a year. But what we've seen with some clients, especially when they're really trying to move the needle and basically engaged in a in a program in order to do that, they actually do quarterly pulse checks to make sure that the needle is actually moving in the right direction and that, you know, what they're doing from a, if you will, programmatic standpoint or action standpoint is actually having the impact. So, and in that, in a certain way, it also, you don't always have to, you know, you can do a very quick survey where you're just doing it again, a pulse check on a, those few questions and just making sure that you're tracking that as opposed to, once a year doing a, if you will, kind of longer, longer survey where you're getting a bit more information on how they're perceiving all facets of the employee experience and, and, you know, other pieces like that. Brian, we're getting questions on best practices when it comes to research in this area. You've touched on a lot. Anything else? Well, I mean, I think, you know, another best practice is to have an outside organization in some ways collecting and analyzing the data because, you know, I'll, I'll have to say I've also sometimes seen that not done all that well, not by us, by others, but but where, you know, if you get a very small cell of people, meaning people in a given geography in a certain function at a certain role, right, which, you know, let's say you only have four people. Now, you know, you shouldn't report on those four people because they're, they're uh, you know, too identifiable. So that's the other thing is obviously you want to guarantee the confidentiality and trust and, and privacy of employees. And that goes to also, you know, how you slice and dice the data, because sometimes you shouldn't slice it in, into certain things that are too small because they start identifying people. Brian, how can you persuade the employees that it is truly anonymous? I mean, I think that's again, that's why having an, an external agency being the host and, and, you know, being the ones who, who are collecting the data, one should help and then providing them the guarantee that the data will only be reported in a way that is aggregate and, and not, and, uh, you know, with no cuts that could in any way identify people at an individual or even sort of small group of individual level. Brian, is it an online survey or do you augment it for color with conversations and interviews? What is best? Well, I mean, best is is the combination of all things. I mean, meaning is to is to do a survey, but to also do qualitative. Gretchen and her team do a lot of employee listening sessions as part of of this, and I'm sure she'd probably be happy to talk to those. But I think the benefit of those is not just that you're getting the ability to have, you know, a little more interaction and, and color from people, but also the fact that it's kind of a touch point that's recruiting them also in the sense that they feel like their voice truly is being heard in a, in an active fashion as opposed to it just being a survey. But, but I'll hand it to, to Gretchen if she wants to talk to those a bit. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, indeed. We love to do both. Uh, optimally from timing, we often run the survey first. That will give us a read on where things are at. Maybe what are some of those topics that we do want to go deeper into? And then we can have these listening sessions with employees to dig deeper on those topics. It's also a way to kind of getting them helping us ideate what are the fixes? What are the solutions? If this is a rough spot, what is it you'd like to see in this space that we could create? And that's extremely helpful for when we go back and programmatically look at the changes we're going to make. Gretchen, staying with you for a moment, we're getting questions around how to get started. What would you say to an employer who is embarking on this kind of program and wants to improve employee engagement and, of course, recognizing the opportunity around simplification? Yeah, I mean, of course, 
I would love if they could get some data because I've just mentioned earlier, you know, starting with some data. It could be surveys they already run, but, you know, most most organizations today run some kind of survey and um, take a look at what that data is showing you. Look at how your experience is coming through. Look at where those patches are that maybe because there's a good experience for employees, but where there's some rough spots and then try to triangulate that. If you have an employee value proposition or a talent brand, think about and, you know, how much is this data? showing that it's supporting this idea and this promise or where are their mismatches or where are their issues. And then try to dig in on how could I close that gap? Always keeping in mind the promise we're making as an organization and how we want to move ourselves forward. Um, if you don't have, like I said, a brand promise or an EVP, that might be the right place to start because you need something to anchor on that gives you that kind of true north. You know, this is what we're trying to do and we can keep moving toward that to make sure we're you know, gonna be able to achieve what we wanna achieve. Gretchen, any perspective on the role of ERGs? ERGs, employee resource groups, have become very popular in companies. We touched on DEI, of course, earlier. Positive force on employee engagement or not so much? No, I think they're really important. I mean, they have to be set up appropriately and they have to be of course, inclusive. And that means there's always a pressure on organizations. How many ERGs are you going to have? Have you addressed rightfully all the topics? So I think that's the tension that organizations sometimes feel. But I, I see them as very powerful forces in organizations today. We often use them as part of our research. Besides focus groups with kind of, you know, a broad selection of employees across the organization, we can easily dig in and talk to these groups specifically to understand where they're at. And they provide really powerful insights to us. So on the whole, I'm, I'm very supportive of ERGs. I think they're pretty important to organizations. Yes, and they seem like a ready-made population to get that pulse on as it relates to the impact of an EVP or indeed employee experience across different populations. My sense is they might be underutilized in this regard because it's also an opportunity to engage the ERGs. It's programming for ERGs as well. Absolutely. Gretchen, I asked Brian about timelines. What do you see? And he referenced a very gorgeous aspirational goal of 80% of employees being in the brand champions category. What can employers expect in terms of speed and how to get folks into that spot? What have you seen? I'm sure you've seen a lot of different possibilities. That's a tricky question, Margaret, because it has a lot to do with how much effort you put in, right? Um, programmatically, communication-wise, and so on, to, to move things. But I think you have to expect at least six months. I mean, we always say to you know any organization we're working with, you're not going to see any shift inside of six months. That's the baseline. And that's pretty great if you see something there. Often, it can take as much as a year for you to understand your baseline, to diagnose what it is that you want to do, to put out some changes into the organization, let those start to take effect, and employees to start to feel them and then see that, oh, yes, we've moved things. People are different. It depends on the size of the organization as well. It's much easier to make an impact in a smaller organization than a large global one. But I think it is about you, you've got to give it at least a good six months and probably up to a year to see something shifting. Question coming in around hybrid work and uh, work from home and various models that are now very dominant in our work cultures. What are the implications of these working models as it relates to employee engagement at work? 
we see that it is it's here to stay so when we talk to our clients it's it, this is not the kind of thing where you can say like well that was over you know it's changed the perception of what employees want to experience at work and so and employees want that they want to have this flexibility more and more we see that coming through in the research and surveys that we do and so I guess what we advise is you have to take a step back as an employer and see how you can meet them around that desire. I've personally seen organizations flip the other way more recently, um, probably too fast. Really, you know, even if employees didn't leave the organization because there were layoffs, recessionary pressures, you saw this kind of phenomenon, the quiet quitting and people, you know, really not being happy at their place of work because the organization suddenly said, you know, well, hybrid is over. I want people back in the organization and so on. So we advise our client organizations to say, this is here. You need to find a way to work with it, find a way to have it as part of maybe your promise. Maybe it's not 100%, but it's not something that we would advise to totally ignore because it's kind of reshaped the way the workforce thinks about the world of work. And quiet quitting, it was all the range some months back. This idea that employees were somewhat disengaged, that would be how I would characterize it, Gretchen. Is that consistent with your characterizations? Yeah, that's correct. Gretchen, we're running to the end of the conversation. I want to invite you to reflect on top takeaways. You've shared so much, and Brian, I'll come to you in a moment with the same question. So top takeaways as it relates to employee engagement and brand. Two things come to mind. So I guess first is, you know, I was asked earlier about what do you do about leadership across the organization? But beyond that, I would say the most important is that HR and brand slash marketing come at this topic together, hand in glove. Brand and that idea of who you are as an organization, the promise we're making is such a energizing, creative outlet that really gets employees excited. But you need HR to weave that into those experiences and make sure this is coming through in the right way. So I see way too often that these topics get addressed by one or the other function. And I think, you know, first and foremost is making sure those two organizations, those two functions in the organization come together and work on this. The other is that, you know, I love simplicity because simplicity leads to clarity and clarity leads to focus. So we're working with a very large manufacturing organization that's global right now um, on exactly all of these topics. They've hit some performance skids, which means, of course, there are cost pressures. And yet still, we need to figure out how can we really engage employees, lift them up, connect them to our brand. And, and that's where we've really been able to see it's not about doing a 100 things. It is about really looking at what are some real signature experiences and part of this employee journey that we can invest in that's going to make a difference, that will mean something. And that is really going to pay back as opposed to, you know, trying to do everything which we don't have the budget for anyway. So, and, and that's all possible because of that simple, clear focus that we can have. And in your work with a client, you help them identify those signature moments. Correct. That's right. Brian, anything we missed, anything to add, please, in terms of key takeaways from this conversation? Um, no, I mean, and I think actually uh, Gretchen has said it even more than I have, but it's obviously, you know, that you want to measure, and back to your question earlier, Margaret, about well, measuring employee satisfaction versus other things. Nothing wrong with it measuring employee satisfaction, but you you also do want to measure these aspects that tie more to to brand and to employee understanding and, and commitment from that standpoint, as well as you want to measure what's happening from an employee experience standpoint. So not just perceptions, but also what 
touch points, what things are actually, um, you know, having the greatest impact on them. And then just the last piece also still tied in some ways to measurement, but it but tied actually to overall is don't just think about your employees, also think about prospective talent. Because obviously, yes, you you know, you want your employees to be loyal and you want to keep and engage your most valuable employees, but you also want to be sought out as an employer and the people you're competing against as an employer, potentially not the same people you're competing against from a you know client or customer standpoint, um, in the sense that, you know, what we've seen is many companies need to recruit tech talent where, you know, they're competing against the Googles and the Amazons of the world and they're not just competing against their their usual competitors. So you want to also understand what's going to drive that prospective talent to pick you versus others. And those others, again, might not be your traditional, you know, the people you know best. Such an interesting point, Brian, because very often when you're competing with tech companies or startups, they may have other options, literally stock options and the like to use to be attractive. And other companies may not have those benefits at their disposal. So leaning into brand provides an alternative conversation there. Thank you for highlighting that. Gretchen, as I wrap up, anything we missed? Anything you'd like to underline? I don't I don't really think so, Margaret. We've covered a lot of territory, to be honest. I think um said my piece. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, really enjoy this conversation. A big thank you also to our very engaged audience. Thank you for your questions. We set out to learn a few things, and I think we learned how to understand the role of simplicity in the workplace, how to identify, measure, and cultivate brand champions, how to engage employees and drive those all-important business results, and improve employee hiring and retention outcomes. So wonderful lessons there. For our audience who would like to dig a little deeper, I invite you to download the entire Simplicity at Work study. You will find it with lots of charts that are helpful in presentations on our Siegel and Gale website. The link is also in the chat. And for those listening in the podcast, we include the link in the show notes as well. Please follow Siegel and Gale on LinkedIn for updates on our next Unlocking Brand series. And if you have a topic you would like us to explore, please feel free to put it in the chat or the Q&A. And indeed, you may also direct message me on LinkedIn and our experts will address this topic on an upcoming Unlocking Brand episode. Finally, to share this conversation and re-listen to it, we will drop it on the podcast. So please follow Siegel and Gail Says on your favorite podcast platform. I invite you also to follow our second podcast, how CMOs commit for deep interviews with CMOs around the topics that are dominating those conversations today. With that, all that remains is for me to thank Gretchen, Brian, thank our audience and our team once again. I'm Margaret Malloy, thanking you on behalf of all of us at Siegel & Gale. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about our work and read our thought leadership on SiegelGale.com. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. While you're at it, leave us a review. See you next time.